It's a victory for all of the planet and for future generations. We could use one of those. I'll take it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn. GDPR Nashville and of course Radio Sputnik five days a week I'm Brad Friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure coming up momentarily Dr. Michael E. Mann, author of the infamous hockey stick graph, showing how global temperatures have increased over the last hundred years or so with the increase of carbon in the atmosphere. This is a big day to talk to uh, Dr. Michael Mann. I've got a lot of questions for him after the U.N. Climate Summit COP21 wrapped up with a with a really huge agreement. Big, big agreement, I think, over the weekend between some 200 nations worldwide they said it couldn't be done the agreement is now done to curb uh, global emissions around the world now we'll see how good that agreement was and how uh, how well that agreement will actually work to avoid the uh, worst effects of climate change coming up i hope to get uh, michael mann's thoughts on that on the uh, that paris agreement and the uh, ongoing assault on science by congressional republicans I should really say by all Republicans at this point, uh, actually, but uh, particularly the U.S. House Science Committee right now, which is, uh, I think David Roberts talked about it on this show a few weeks ago as the new McCarthyism in the U.S. House. Also want to ask him about, ask Michael Mann about the ongoing investigation into what Exxon knew and when they knew it. And I've got a number of really dumb Dumb science questions that I've been wanting to ask him about for a while. So I, I love when we are lucky enough to have Professor Mann with us here. Um, speaking of dumb science, uh, hello, Desi Doyen. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. What, what, why did I say that? Well, that's uh, because it's funny. Totally uncalled for. That's true. Uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, my co-host on the Green News Report. I know you have been... Uh, up around the clock following the goings on in oh, Paris. Yeah, it so was very epic. exciting epic. for a gal like you. Also later in the show today, Barack Obama, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me still, uh, came into the White House press briefing room 
on Monday to give an update on the U.S. fight against the terror group ISIS. Not altogether clear why he decided to make that statement today. Uh, maybe it's a mulligan for his uh, his previous remarks in the Oval Office last week. Uh, maybe he wanted to have something else on record uh, in advance of the GOP presidential debate that will take place in Las Vegas on Tuesday night. And we will, of course, be covering that as ever on the broadcast. I think Digby is back with us. Is Digby back with us? Uh, yes, Heather? yes. Digby Parton will be joining us and... I think, I don't want to say yet, but I think we've got someone else very exciting who's never been on, well, who hasn't, uh, yeah, who hasn't really been on the show. Someone who's called into this show before, but hasn't actually been on it as an official guest, I, I think will be joining us for our GOP debate coverage uh, coming up later in the week. Uh, but we will play you, uh, we'll try to get to some of uh, Barack Obama's remarks today in the White House press room. We also had some new presidential election polling data over the weekend that I had hoped to get to a bit later. We'll see if the president's remarks on ISIS today ended up pushing all of that off for another day or not. We'll see. In short, uh, Trump is up even further, up by a mile. Uh, but uh, Hillary Clinton would uh, clean his clock nonetheless in a head-to-head face-off. But we've got more on that and on Bernie Sanders and a whole lot of other stuff that I hope we get to today. But first, before all of that, headline, coal consumption affecting climate. The furnaces of the world are now burning about 2 billion tons of coal a year. When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about 7 billion tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the Earth and to raise its temperatures. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. That from the Braywood Dispatch and Mining Journal, July 17. 1912. That's right. Since 1912, we have known about the uh, effects of global warming and the concerns. That headline, remarkable, actually, comes from environmental author Cameron Muir, who uh, posted it on Twitter over the weekend. Uh, We have been doing our best on the broadcast amidst all of the noise and fear and panic over the last several weeks following the terror attacks in Paris and in San Bernardino and the fear and fascism arising out of the presidential campaign to try to keep our eyes on what will, I would say, most likely be the most important event of December 2015, if not the entire year or more. And that is, of course, the 21st annual gathering of the Conference of the Parties or COP21 to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that's been going on in Paris over the past two weeks. And extraordinarily, over the weekend, As our friend Joe Rome wrote at Climate Progress, in a literally world-changing deal that was almost unthinkable just a year ago, some 200 leading nations unanimously embraced a plan that will leave most of the world's fossil fuels unburned. As part of a concerted effort to avoid catastrophic climate change, the world unanimously committed to an ongoing effort of increasingly deeper emissions reductions aimed at keeping total warming to well below 2 degrees centigrade, that's about 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. The full text of this Paris Agreement goes even further, says Rome, with the parties agreeing to, quote, pursue efforts to limit 
the temperature increase to just 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, recognizing that this would significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change. Already global coal appears to be plateauing. Global, global oil use will likely follow suit in the next decade as countries ratchet up their CO2 targets, according to this agreement. To get an idea of how challenging these negotiations have been, says Rome, imagine trying to get a substantive agreement on any major topic in the U.S. Senate if the re requirement for success were unanimity. And that's exactly what it, re what it required of the uh, nearly 200 nations that gathered in Paris. Yes, they agreed unanimously over the weekend to this remarkable accord. Here's what it sounded like. Je regarde uh, la salle. Out of the room, I see that the, the reaction is positive. I see no objections. The Paris Agreement is adopted. <laughs> and the crowd went absolutely wild. Joe Rome says this is humanity's best chance to avoid decades, if not centuries, of needless suffering for billions of people. But notes that while the Paris Agreement means the world may avoid many of the most catastrophic impacts, a quarter century of largely ignoring scientific warnings has left the world unable to stop a number of very dangerous impacts, including sea level rise, ocean acidification, extreme weather, and dust bullification. So very, very big news over the weekend that you may or may not have heard about, given the fact that... Uh, the corporate mainstream media in the U.S. is focusing on just about everything else. But uh, we're trying to keep our eyes on what's important. So here to talk about all of this uh, and more is another old friend of ours, Dr. Michael E. Mann, the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He's the author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications and the book, the Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. He's contributed with other IPCC authors to the, uh, to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. He received the National Conservation Achievement Award for Science by the National Wildlife Federation in 2013. He made Bloomberg News' list of 50 most influential people in 2013 and is a fellow of both the American Geophysical Union and the American Meteorological Society. Uh, Dr. Michael E. Mann, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thank you. It's always good to be with you guys. Always great to have you here. All right, the world is saved. Climate change is now over. Uh, <laughs> after Paris, your thoughts, sir, about this historic Paris Agreement? Well, you know, I, I think... Uh, it's difficult to actually understate the significance of this agreement. I think we are witnessing the end of the age of fossil fuels and the beginning of a new age of uh, a clean global energy economy. Uh, I think that's really what this, um, this agreement uh, is going to give us, ultimately. So the devil is always in the details. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, what we're dealing with are a set of uh, voluntary commitments on the part of uh, the nearly 200 nations. What emissions reductions they are willing to make right now. Um, it doesn't actually um, uh, come under uh, force of law. There's no uh, official uh, sort of enforcement uh, mechanism um, other than uh, peer pressure. I, I don't think um, any nation wants to be looked at by the rest of the world as the 
you know, the, the mm-hmm. intransigent um, uh, partner who's unwilling to make good on their commitment. And so I think that is what's going to hold this together. Uh, I think that's what's going to, you know, allow us to, uh, you know, this is an initial step. It's the first step in what will be an ongoing uh, process. Uh, the the reductions that we'll get out of this agreement alone won't be enough to keep us below dangerous levels of warming, mm-hmm. but it puts in place a process where we can revisit in a few years um, the uh, commitments and hopefully get uh, even more stringent carbon reductions from the various nations. It starts to put us on the path to avoiding dangerous climate change. Going into these talks, uh, Mike, the uh, into the UN climate talks in Paris, the talk was about the scientific analysis that a, a goal to keep temperatures from rising no higher than two degrees was impossible, that the best we could do was limited to a rise of about two and a half degrees. But then as the conference went on, this call for 1.5 for a 1.5 degree goal started to be heard, and we, we had uh, Dr. Hugh Seeley of Grenada, who was working with the small island nations, saying they need 1.5 to stay alive. So are any right. of these goals, whether it's 1.5 or 2 degrees, uh, are, are, well, a few questions. Actually, are they doable at this point? Are they realistic, you know, politically and scientifically, more more importantly? And will that, even if we can keep it to 1.5, for example, will that be enough to stave off the worst effects of climate change that guys like you and, and other scientists who know what they're talking about have been predicting for so long? Yeah, very good questions. And there, there is a, a lot of confusion out there, uh, and in part it's because... Um, uh, there has been uh, a tendency for conflation by some uh, experts uh, of two very different things. Mm-hmm. Is it possible physically to prevent that amount of warming? Can we make the necessary reductions in our carbon emissions so that we avoid, say, 2 degrees Celsius uh, warming or even a lower 1.5 degrees Celsius warming? And the answer, uh, and, uh, and I can give that answer confidently as a scientist who studies the numbers, mm-hmm. is yes. It is absolutely still physically possible. <clears throat> what is more in question, uh, of course, is, is it doable? Is it achievable? And that's a matter of political will. Um, that, that's really the only limitation um, there is whether or not we're willing to do uh, as you know, a, a global civilization what is necessary to achieve those reductions. Um, and it's important to keep that in mind because there's some people who said, no, it's impossible is impossible to do. And when you sort of scratch just beneath the surface of their argument, all they're saying is, no, we won't do it. We mm-hmm. won't garner the political will to do it. Well, you know, this agreement in Paris, I think, is a sign that we are starting to garner the sort of political will that is necessary to, to stave off those dangerous levels of warming. But there's no question it's going to re- require dramatic action. Um, uh, this is just the beginning. The hard work is ahead. Uh, the sooner we bring down our emissions, the sooner we phase out coal and other fossil fuels, uh, the, the easier it will be. Um, if we don't bring our emissions down fast enough, then it gets a little bit more complicated because then pretty soon what you're relying upon is the development eventually of technology to remove carbon from the atmosphere. If we burn too much over the next couple decades, mm-hmm. if we burn through our budget of carbon, then we're going to have to take some of that carbon back out of the atmosphere to avoid two degrees Celsius warming, let alone one and a half degrees Celsius warming. So uh, it is doable. 
Um, it's physically possible, and I think there's evidence that we are starting to garner uh, the will. And and that. so it it's possible, and you feel that if we keep it to 2 or even 1.5 degrees, that in fact that alone will reverse the, 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 the worst effects of climate change that we are looking at if we do not keep it to 2 degrees? Yeah, and I think you've hit upon something very important. I mean, who is to define what dangerous climate change is? You know, we hold out this number two degrees Celsius. You, you, now. Michael Mann, you're the one <laughs> who needs to tell us. Well, then I've been doing a bad job <laughs> because it's, it really has to be a more nuanced discussion. Uh-huh. Um, two degrees Celsius commits us to some range of impacts that are mm-hmm. going, going to be dangerous and uh, irreversible. One and a half degrees Celsius uh, uh, again, um, basically locks in a a certain amount of dangerous and and potentially irreversible climate change. So any further warming is bad. And the question is, how bad and for whom? If you are a low-lying island nation Mm -hmm. right now, then dangerous climate change has already arrived. The the effect of uh, global sea level is already uh, becoming catastrophic. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, uh, in, here in this state of California, um, I'm at the uh, AGU meeting, American Geophysical Union in San Francisco right mm-hmm. now, um, and, you know, California is still in the midst of an epic and unprecedented drought. Um, uh, for farmers uh, and many other stakeholders here in California, dangerous climate change has uh, arrived. Uh, if you lost your home to Hurricane Sandy, which was certainly, or Superstorm Sandy, which mm-hmm. was certainly made worse by climate change, then dangerous climate change has already arrived for you. So it's really a matter of how bad we're willing to let it get. And uh, there's an excellent argument that we should hold it to less than a, a degree and a half. If it were possible, we should hold it to even less. The only safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere is the level of CO2 in the atmosphere that prevailed before we started burning fossil fuels. Uh, your uh, well, your colleague, uh, Dr. Uh, James Hansen, scientist, uh, lead scientist at NASA for years, uh, it, it really brought the concerns about uh, the greenhouse effect and climate change to light when he testified. I think it was 1988 in uh, in the U.S. Senate, uh, warning about the you know the. the the, the potential of uh, uh, carbon in the atmosphere to warm the atmosphere, exactly what we are seeing now. Uh, his response to the Paris Agreement was that uh, he said that because we did not get a price on carbon, a carbon tax, therefore, uh, he regard used strong words, he called uh, the agreement a, quote, total fraud. Uh, your thoughts on what uh, Dr. James Hansen uh, had to say about the uh, Paris Agreement? Yeah, well, I wish he had told us how he really feels. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> um, well, you know, Jim, I have the the, the, the greatest respect uh, for Jim, and in fact, I will be speaking right after him at a session on scientific reticence here at the uh, at the conference mm-hmm. uh, this afternoon. Um, he, you know, certainly uh, has been, um, you know, one of uh, the most important uh, scientists, uh, one of the greatest uh, contributors um, to our understanding of this problem, and he has been passionate in his views about what it's going to take to solve this problem. Uh, That having been said, um, there are many experts who who don't share his uh, views necessarily. Uh, For example, he is very specific about um, the notion that we need a carbon tax. But can you imagine the outrage (laughs) if we were to legislate to all countries um, of the world the specific financial vehicles that they need to employ to solve this problem? 
I don't think that's practical. I don't think that's reasonable. We obviously have to provide some amount of flexibility to different nations to find ways to meet the, the reductions targets. So, um, and, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so, you know, in uh, Europe, for example, in, in Germany, they're using a feed-in tariff, which is a way of incentivizing uh, green, uh, clean energy. Um, there are many ways of, of trying to solve this problem. And to try to legislate globally one very specific financial vehicle like a carbon tax, I don't think that's practical. I think it's a non-starter. So essentially what the agreement does is it locks in these commitments from all of these various countries and then how they go about reducing that emissions, exactly. that's up to them if they want to put in place a tax uh, or a cap and trade or anything else, the clean power plan that... Uh, President Obama is uh, putting in place here. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you're, right. since you mentioned, uh, uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Michael E. Mann, since you mentioned the American Geophysical Union, that you're uh, speaking at their annual convention out there in, uh, I think, San Francisco, uh, right. you you heard my uh, that clip. I, I don't know if you had uh, seen that um, remarkable clip from 1912 from the Braidwood Dispatch and Mining Journal warning about climate change. Uh, literally about uh, the burning of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Well, in uh, here's another one from 1953. Carbon dioxide from man's increased industrial activity was having a, quote, greenhouse effect in the upper atmosphere, tending to make the world's climate warmer, a physicist reported yesterday. Dr. Gilbert Plass told the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union that the large increase in industrial activity during the present century was discharging so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that the average temperature was rising at the rate of one and a half degrees each century. Kind of right on the money. That was from the West Australian uh, May 6, 1953. Uh, Michael Mann, uh, you know, it, it seems like the last 10 or 20 years this has finally come... Uh, you know, into the consciousness of the world. But the warnings have been going on about this over, well, clearly now, over a century. Um, That's right. I had no idea that this went back absolutely that far. Actually, were, were, were you aware of that uh, as a member of the American Geophysical Union? Did you know they were already warning about that decades and decades ago? Well, yes. In fact, um, it goes back even further. In, in a sense, it goes back nearly two centuries uh, there's a, a very famous uh, scientist from the early 1800s, Joseph Fourier, and uh, if you you know take uh, college level uh, calculus, um, uh, if you take college level physics, you can't help but learn about the early work of Joseph Fourier. He gave us the law of heat conduction. I mean, really basic stuff. He developed the mathematics that we use today, the the so-called Fourier series. So th this. This was one of those great, you know, scientists uh, back in, you know, the, the, the early 19th century when you could work on uh, many different problems and be a uh, world leader uh, in each of those areas. Mm -hmm. And he understood that uh, there were gases in the atmosphere that warmed the planet. So uh, the greenhouse effect, our understanding that there is an atmospheric greenhouse effect, goes back nearly two centuries. And over time, as you've noted, we've simply been ratcheting up uh, the strength of the evidence, the detailed uh, nature of our understanding, but the, the essence of this goes back nearly two centuries. We've also been ratcheting up the denial, it seems, in response right. to that problem. Uh, 
you wrote last week in the New York Times, the New York Times op-ed, uh, in response to subpoenas now being sent by Congressman Lamar Smith. He's the uh, Republican chair of the U.S. House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. Uh, he's been uh, he's now subpoenaed scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Uh, we've talked about what Smith seems to be doing here. Vox's David Roberts was on this show a few weeks ago, characterizing it as a new McCarthyism in the U.S. Yeah. House. And he's now responded to your New York Times op-ed. I wanted to give you a chance to respond to him. Uh, but also, if you could give us a gist of, of the, your piece headlined The Assault on Climate Science in the New York Times last week. Sure. So uh, this this piece was, um, you know, my my effort to draw upon my own experiences. Um, a, a decade ago, I was under a very similar attack by mm -hmm. the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, Joe Barton of Texas, sometimes called Smokey Joe, because yep. of his dismal environmental record. And it was the same basic. Um, know mean you know type of intimidation effort where he was demanding all of my personal emails and every paper every scrap of paper of notes mm -hmm. from my entire scientific career clearly in an effort to try to discredit uh, my science and to try to discredit me for the fossil fuel funders who, who fund his campaigns uh, he was looking for some way to try to discredit this iconic hockey stick graph uh, that my co-authors and I published a decade and a half ago. And what we're seeing now is exactly the same sort of tactic uh, used by the House, uh, the, the, the chair of the House uh, Science Committee, mm -hmm. Lamar Smith, who is sort of an equal opportunity science denier. He denies the science of evolution. He denies the science of climate change. But in the case of climate change, uh, it's far more pernicious because he's really acting, in essence, as an advocate, once again, for the fossil fuel interests who fund his campaigns and to whom he's beholden. He's basically doing their bidding by trying to intimidate government scientists who have published uh, work demonstrating the, the ongoing uh, reality and threat of climate change. He's tried to defund all of Earth science's funding at the NSF to get rid of climate research. He wants to redefine uh, how the National Science Foundation selects which grants get uh, funded. He wants to replace scientific, the, the vaunted um, uh, the, uh, method of uh, scientific peer review, that grants are reviewed by other experts in the field, and that's how program managers uh, assess which grants should be funded. He wants to replace that with congressional oversight, with a process, a system where people like him get to decide what science gets funded. Can you imagine um, how dangerous that could be. So, uh, ironically, you know, this guy is the chair of the House Science Committee, mm -hmm. but if anything, uh, he stands not for science, but anti-science. Why are they, in your opinion, uh, Michael Mann, why are they uh, doing this? You mentioned Smokey Joe Barton. Uh, he right. was the, actually the one, I think, famously, if, if I recall correctly, who apologized to BP uh, during right. the uh, oil disaster in the Gulf for uh, the, the attempts to uh, hold them accountable for that. Uh, why are they doing this? Why is uh, Rep. Lamar doing this? And, and, uh, and he says, well, let me just also, he says, NOAA inexplicably omitted satellite data to reach the conclusions that it wanted. He says that that satellite data showed that, quote, clearly no warming for the past two decades. And I guess 
He's trying to get at what really happened. He calls the uh, the data coming out from Noah as clearly suspect. What is all of this really about, in in your opinion, Michael Mann? Yeah, there's not a truthful word in, in his statements. Um, uh, they didn't eliminate anything. They're using the most reliable data that we have, actual in situ thermometer measurements of temperatures. Now, there is... Uh, there are other uh, types of data which are quite controversial. There are these satellite um, soundings. Uh, uh, they measure temperatures in, in the atmosphere indirectly uh, through microwaves by sending down microwave beams. And those, that approach is so laden in assumptions and caveats. It's so indirect that we still don't know exactly what they're measuring. And there are some groups that have analyzed those data uh, using a particular method which mm-hmm. has come under fire um, for um, uh, the, the, the way that it tends to uh, sort of eliminate the um, actual evidence of warming in, in, the, in their algorithm. They actually had some errors in their algorithm that changed a plus sign to a negative sign. Um, so there's some very suspect work um, by climate change contrarians that he's trying to grab hold of and say, well, look, there's this other line of evidence. Well, it's very weak, and we don't really trust it, um, and it isn't even measuring temperatures at the surface uh, of the, the planet, which is where we leave, live and w- what we're most uh, interested in and concerned about. It measures some average of temperatures somewhere in the atmosphere above the, uh, the, the surface, and, and even that is uncertain. So what he's doing is just grabbing hold of any, you know, cherry-picking any contrarian data set that he can to try to, you know, uh, basically divert attention away from the very solid evidence that these scientists and many other scientists around the world have presented uh, about how the surface of the Earth is warming um, and, and how um, it is indicative of our ongoing uh, you know, impact on the climate. And that data set, that satellite data set, that is, if I understand it, almost exclusively what uh, the deniers now refer to when they say that there has been a pause for in global warming for 15 years or that it's declining, it's actually getting cooler. Uh, that... Uh, questionable data set is now uh, different than all of the other measurements of, of surface temperatures and ocean temperatures, uh, correct? Is that the one data set that... It, it, yeah. yeah, and it's even more of a bait-and-switch than, than that, because what the, really they were trying to argue there was a pause um, in the actual surface observations, and they did that by starting with a really warm year, 1998, which was a huge El Nino year, so it was very warm there. And so there's this sort of disingenuous way of trying to argue, argue against a trend by sort of choosing a starting date that happened to be very warm and then drawing your trend line forward to uh-huh. other years that were cooler. Um, that's not how you do it. You have to stand back and you have actually have to look at the longer-term trend, and you're not allowed to cherry-pick your starting date or your ending date. That's not valid statistics. Um, so if you do it right, um, if you do re- uh, correct statistics, um, defensible statistics, then the, the warming trend has been evident. Uh, it's been evident that the globe continues to warm. But for a while, they were able to sort of do that cherry-picking where they could start with 1998. And since we hadn't had any recent record-breaking temperatures, um, if you started with that year and drew the trend line, you could try to argue that uh, the warming wasn't significant. Well, they lost that argument 
uh, a year ago, because 2014 came in as the warmest year on record, and now 2015 is going to come in as even warmer than 2014. So they recognized, okay, well, the data are now uh, very clearly, um, you know, the data themselves are discrediting, uh, this, as they come in, are, are discrediting this notion that there was a pause uh, in warming. And so they've had to give up that, and instead they said, oh, but wait, there is this other data set, the satellite data, um, it's a bait-and-switch because yeah. they lost the arguments, and now it's a, a means of distracting observers by um, pointing to yet another data set, which we have long known is not reliable. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael E. Mann. Uh, standby, uh, Professor. i got to take a quick break, and we will be back with uh, more broadcast and more questions for you. I want to ask you about uh, your thoughts on the investigation into what Exxon knew and when they knew it. And I've got some dumb science questions for you that I'm I'm hoping you can help me out with. So uh, stand by for a quick break here and we will be back with much more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Science is real from the Big Bang. It may be real, but don't tell any of the Republican candidates for president of the United States. Don't tell any of the Republicans in the U.S. House. Let them continue their fantasies, I guess. We have no choice. Um, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Science may be real, but I've got a, got a bunch of dumb science questions uh, for my guest. And uh, I also want to ask about ExxonMobil. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor, Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, of course, uh, and uh, creator with his colleagues of the infamous hockey stick graph that you may have seen in uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. I've never seen the movies, but I understand that that graph is there. Uh, Dr. Mann, uh, your thoughts on calls for investigation and potential prosecution of ExxonMobil, after it was recently revealed uh, by a number of blockbuster investigative reports that their own scientists had confirmed the, quote, potentially catastrophic nature of global warming due to the burning of fossil fuels and carbon released into the atmosphere uh, before Exxon then decided to spend millions to obscure the work of their very own scientists by funding the climate change denialist movements. Uh, there have been calls now for investigation, prosecution akin to big tobacco prosecution. Uh, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that, Dr. Mann. Yeah, I think you've laid it out very nicely. And, uh, and there is a very uh, close analogy with what the tobacco industry did decades ago. Um, even back in the 1950s, they knew that their product was killing people. Mm -hmm. But instead of coming forward and saying, okay, let, let's Let's decide how to deal with this problem. Let's, let, let, let's try to find a way forward. Uh, let's own up 
to you know to to to, to the, the the threat that our, our product has and, and find a way to to deal with this so that we don't continue to subject you know society to this dangerous product instead of doing that that would have been the right thing to do they doubled down um, in deceit and denial um, they attacked scientists independent scientists who were coming forward with evidence that tobacco was harming uh, human beings even when their own internal research actually backed up those scientists so that's sort of what the tobacco industry has done now the analogy holds except for you know their product it isn't just killing individual people it's threatening the health of our entire planet and by some measures the toll of climate change in human lives is likely to be far greater than the toll uh, taken by deaths that were caused by the use of mm. tobacco products. So at some level, um, uh, they need to be held even more accountable, uh, potentially. And so what people are calling for is not prosecution, um, and, and not prosecution of individuals. It's a civil RICO suit, um, which uh, anti-racketeering. It's basically if you're a company and you hid uh, the negative impacts of your product from from people, well, that's a type of fraud, and um, and there's... Uh, and, and you're you're potentially guilty of uh, of that, and you uh, you know, and there are repercussions, financial repercussions. And so, some uh, there are a number of people now who are arguing, based on the information that's come out, that demonstrates that Exxon Mobil, indeed, just like the tobacco industry, knew about the harm of their product, product uh, buried it, and instead attacked other scientists for pointing out what they already knew, what their scientists already knew themselves. Um, it sounds a lot like what Big Tobacco did. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, lead attorneys um, in the RICO suit against uh, uh, Big Tobacco has reviewed the evidence and said that there is a prima facie case here for potentially bringing RICO, um, you know, uh, RICO prosecution against ExxonMobil. But what people are calling for at this point is just an investigation. And that um, was uh, it, Sharon Eubanks, if I recall. She was actually on that this is show. Sharon Eubanks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we absolutely. Had, we had her on this uh, this program talking about exactly that and and talking about how this case so much mirrors, uh, you know, the po- a possible case against ExxonMobil. Yep. How how closely it mirrors the fraud that was carried out by the big tobacco companies. Uh, Mike, I've got a couple of, I I, I know you got to go shortly, but I got uh, two or three really, what I consider perhaps to be dumb science questions that I've been wanting to ask you. Uh, For for a few weeks, I said, next time we have uh, Michael Mann on, I got to ask him. So we'll run through these real quick. I keep hearing of uh, global warming caused, uh, quote, mostly or at least in part or significantly by man. Um, but how much warning, warming would there be going on without man? In other words, would there be any? We're, we're you know, burning all of yeah. this carbon. It's making it warmer. Would the globe at this point be warming anyway? And if so, what is the, the forcing mechanism that, that would be causing it to warm? Yeah, no, that's right. In fact, the statement that, you know, we're responsible, you sometimes say, well, we're responsible for some of the warming, right. maybe even most of it. Well, actually, uh, the best evidence, and the evidence reviewed in the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm-hmm. the most rigorous scientific assessment of the evidence, is that um, we are responsible, in essence, for more than 100% of the warming. <laughs> and what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that natural factors were actually pushing us in the opposite direction volcanoes, small but measurable changes in in solar output, uh, natural factors that can drive the climate, they were actually tending to cool the climate, Mm -hmm. and we have warmed in spite of that. So all of the warming 
And the IPCC essentially concludes as much. All of the warming that we've seen is due to human activity. So when they say mostly or significantly, in fact, uh, it's not mostly due to man uh, burning uh, carbon. It, it's, it's entirely due to that. That's mostly is That's an right. un- underestimation of our uh, culpability here. That's right, and there's some uncertainty, mm-hmm. uh, um, and you know there are natural oscillations in the climate that can impact global temperatures, and so there's some un- uncertainty in the statement. But if you were going to ask scientists, what's your best assessment? What's the most likely role that human activity has had? Um, it would be that it is been responsible for all of the warming we've seen. All right, you're a uh, fellow at the American Meteorological Society as well, uh, so. Here's the other question I have. Uh, Are weather models actually changing now due to climate change? I'm asking this because I keep seeing predictions. I'm out here in Los Angeles where we're, as you know, in the middle of the worst drought ever. Uh, I keep seeing predictions for rain on my iPhone weather app a week from now. And then a day or two later, that changes to full sun. The rain never comes. Is it possible? And this may be stupid. I, I grant you that. Is it possible that our current weather models now that, you know, three years ago might have seen a system that would have caused rain here in Los Angeles a week from now. Uh, but those systems, uh, those models are now wrong and they need to be changed due to global warming and this persistent high, uh, high uh, pressure ridge that's been off California. Are all the models changing? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, so in essence, uh, you know, climate change is literally changing the fabric of our atmosphere. There's more moisture in the atmosphere on average than there used to be. That means there's more energy in the, the atmosphere. And numerical weather forecasting models typically don't really, they're not accounting for factors like that. Um, they're not accounting for climate per se, for you know, you, they know nothing about the ocean temperatures. They know nothing about the influence of the ice sheets. So in a way, the numerical weather forecasting models that we use, they're really like one single component of the climate model. A climate model has an atmospheric component that's like a weather forecasting model, but it interacts with the oceans. It interacts with the ice sheets. It interacts with the global carbon cycle, the the the, the, the carbon in the atmosphere, the other greenhouse gases, um, those aren't in a numerical weather forecasting model. And it is possible that some of our methods of forecasting weather, um, uh, especially um, analog methods where you sort of look, like, uh, look at, well, you know, when conditions were last like this, mm-hmm. um, uh, did we have rain or not in this location? And you can sort of use that, look for past analogs right. to determine whether that is likely to happen now. Those sorts of methods, too, may not perform uh, well when you have a changing climate, when the, you know, the underlying processes themselves are, are, are changing, when there's more water in the atmosphere, there's a more energetic atmosphere. Um, that is indeed possible. Um, a, another variant on that is, you know, we're making projections um, right now about California, um, seasonal rainfall. There's this suggestion that maybe we'll get you know, the rain here and the precipitation and the snowpack that we so sorely need mm-hmm. uh, because of this El Nino event. It's a big El Nino event. and The last time we had an El Nino event anywhere close to this magnitude in winter 97, 98, and I know because I was here at that AGU conference here in San, Fr- San Francisco, yep. it poured incessantly. Yep. It was a very wet year. There was a solid snowpack. And so some people are looking at that and saying, well, okay, this El Nino is even bigger 
um, maybe we'll get that same relief. But as you allude to, as you suspect, it's possible that El Nino does not quite operate in the same way when the whole global baseline of ocean temperatures is higher, which it is now. So these are open questions, um, and uh, these are the sorts of questions that are being actively investigated, you know, here at this meeting right now. I'm so glad you mentioned it, because that was finally, that was my last question. This El Nino conditions that I've been hearing about for years, you've been coming on the show for years, talking about El Nino conditions, right. the warming waters in the, in the Pacific that used to mean a lot of rain. So far... That rain ain't coming. Could it be that these are not El Nino conditions? This is just the new normal that the, now the waters of the ocean are just warmer. Well, it's definitely that an El Nino, but it's an El Nino that's sitting atop a warmer ocean. And that means it's a different beast. Well, I hope you guys uh, figured this out at the American Geophysical Union and uh, over the weekend and can save we'll the world because we really All need right. you. Michael Mann, author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, buy it for Christmas, educate yourself. Uh, Michael Mann, always great to talk to you. Have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year, my friend. Same to you. Thank Thanks you, Thanks again. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're back with uh, the president's comments today in the White House press briefing room updating us all on the fight against ISIS. Oh, brother. And a bunch of new presidential polling data. Try to get to all of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Bradcast, Brad Friedman with you here. We are back uh, after a few weeks break from uh, presidential debates. We've got another Republican debate coming up on Tuesday night. We will, of course, be covering it on this broadcast shortly thereafter. And uh, the Democrats, of course, are hiding their next presidential debate over the weekend coming up, the weekend before Christmas. I guess they just don't want you to see them debate. We've got some new poll numbers out for uh, both the Democratic and the Republican races. Get to that momentarily. But in advance of the uh, Tuesday night debate, the Republican Tuesday night debate in Las Vegas, President Barack Obama came out in the uh, White House press briefing room on Monday to offer an update on the fight against ISIS. Here are a few minutes of his remarks in the briefing room. Today, the United States and our armed forces continue to lead the global coalition in our mission to destroy the terrorist group ISIL. As I outlined in my speech to the nation last weekend, our strategy is moving forward with a great sense of urgency on four fronts. Hunting down and taking out these terrorists, training and equipping Iraqi and Syrian forces to fight ISIL on the ground, stopping ISIL's operations by disrupting the recruiting, financing, and propaganda, and finally, persistent diplomacy to end the Syrian civil war so that everyone can focus on destroying ISIL. I want to provide all of you a brief update on our progress against the ISIL core in Syria and Iraq, because as we squeeze its heart, we'll make it harder for ISIL to pump its terror and propaganda to the rest of the world. This fall, even before the revolting attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, I ordered new actions to intensify our war against ISIL. 
These actions, including more firepower and special operations forces, are well underway. This continues to be a difficult fight. As I said before, ISIL is dug in, including in urban areas, and they hide behind civilians, using defenseless men, women, and children as human shields. So even as we're relentless, we have to be smart, targeting ISIL surgically with precision. At the same time, our partners on the ground are rooting ISIL out town by town, neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block. Uh, that is what this campaign is doing. We are hitting ISIL harder than ever. Coalition aircraft, our fighters, bombers, and drones have been increasing the pace of airstrikes. We're also taking out ISIL leaders, commanders, and killers one by one. The point is ISIL leaders cannot hide, and our next message to them is simple, you are next. Every day, we destroy, as well, more of ISIL's forces. Their fighting positions, bunkers and staging areas, their heavy weapons, bomb-making factories, compounds, and training camps. In many places, ISIL's lost its freedom of maneuver because they know if they mass their forces, we will wipe them out. In fact, since this summer, ISIL has not had a single successful major op offensive operation on the ground in either Syria or Iraq. In recent weeks, we've unleashed a new wave of strikes on their lifeline, their oil infrastructure. ISIL also continues to lose territory in Iraq. So far, ISIL has lost about 40% of the populated areas it once controlled in Iraq, and it will lose more. Again, these are urban areas where ISIL is entrenched. Our partners on the ground face a very tough fight ahead, and we're going to continue to back them up with the support that they need to ultimately clear ISIL from Iraq. ISIL also continues to lose territory in Syria. ISIL's lost thousands of square miles of territory it once controlled in Syria, and it will lose more. The special forces that I ordered to Syria begun supporting local forces they pushed south, cut off supply lines, and tightened the squeeze on Raqqa. Meanwhile, more people are seeing ISIL for the thugs and the thieves and the killers that they are. We've seen instances of ISIL fighters defecting, others who've tried to escape have been executed, and ISIL's reign of brutality and extortion continues to repel local populations and help fuel the refugee crisis. So many people are migrating, said one refu uh, Syrian refugee. Uh, ISIL, she said, will end up all alone. All this said, uh, we recognize that progress needs to keep coming faster. <laughs> No one knows that more than the countless Syrians and Iraqis living every day under ISIL's terror, as well as the families in San Bernardino and Paris and elsewhere who are grieving the loss of their loved ones. Just as the United States is doing more in this fight, just as our allies, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom, Australia, and Italy are doing more, so must others. And that's why I've asked Secretary Carter to go to the Middle East to work with our coalition partners on securing more military contributions to this fight. On the diplomatic front, Secretary Kerry will be in Russia tomorrow as we continue to work as part of the Vienna process to end the Syrian civil war. Uh, meanwhile, here at home, the Department of Homeland Security is updating its alert system to help the American people stay vigilant and safe. And as always, our extraordinary men and women in uniform continue to put their lives on the line in this campaign and around the world to keep the rest of us safe. Because of you, the America uh, that we know and love and cherish uh, is leading the world in this fight. Because of you, I am confident that we are going to prevail. 
Thank you very much, everybody. That was President Obama in the White House briefing room announcing the uh, fight against ISIS. More bombing, more military solutions that, well, haven't worked for years, but maybe suddenly they will now. So there you go. Got a few minutes here. Yeah, just a few minutes uh, for some presidential election news. Uh, Donald Trump has now hit his widest lead yet among Republican voters in a new national poll showing that he has surged ahead by his widest margin yet. Uh, he is now the front runner in the GOP nomination race by 30 points. Trump hit 41 percent nationally uh, among Republicans and GOP-leaning voters in the December Monmouth University poll. That was a marked increase from the 28 percent in its October poll. So he's gone from 28 percent to 41 percent among Republicans nationally. Wow. Uh, That's his widest lead of any national poll this cycle. Senator Ted Cruz saw a more modest four-point bump to 14%. He's now in second place. Behind Cruz, 10% of voters said they would uh, back Marco Rubio, 9% for uh, Dr. Ben Carson, just 3% for both former Governor Jeb Bush and Ohio Governor John Kasich. No other Republican candidate reached more than 2%. That is sure to uh, freak out the establishment Republicans who are trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do. In the meantime, in Iowa, Senator Ted Cruz has now uh, jumped into first place with a 10-point lead over Iowa among uh, Republican caucus goers, according to the Des Moines Register Bloomberg Politics poll released over the weekend. Cruz polled at 31%. To uh, Donald Trump uh, with his distant second at 21 percent. So that could get interesting. Um, Let's see. In the meantime, Hillary Clinton beats them all. Well, Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton would easily defeat Donald Trump in a general election matchup where the election held today. According to NBC News and Wall Street Journal on Monday, Clinton would defeat uh, Trump by 10 points. 50 to 40 percent. She would also beat Senator Ted Cruz, but by only three points, 48 to 45. That's within the poll's margin of error. And she would lose to Senator Marco Rubio by three points and to Ben Carson by one in a hypothetical head to head matchup nationally. Of course, we don't have national elections. So how would Bernie Sanders do against those same people? Well, we don't know. Because for some reason, at least in this poll, the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, they did not poll to find out how Bernie Sanders would do against Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, etc. And this is something that uh, the Sanders campaign is now justifiably complaining about. They are demanding more equitable coverage from corporate network news, which they say have engaged in a Bernie blackout. They released a, uh, a statement. We talked a little bit about this late last week, uh, but complaining that ABC, CBS and NBC are giving uh, paltry airtime to Sanders compared to other similarly positioned candidates. In the statement, they uh, cited, for example, ABC World News Tonight, which has devoted 81 minutes of airtime to the campaign of Donald Trump compared to 20 seconds 
for Bernie Sanders through the end of November. 81 minutes versus 20 seconds. 81 minutes for Trump, 20 seconds for Sanders, despite the fact that he has uh, Sanders has has attracted uh, the largest crowds of the campaign season. It's it's kind of remarkable. Uh, He also leads Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire by four points, according to our uh, to the real clear politics polling average. Another poll had him up by about 10 points over Hillary Clinton uh, last week. And yet the uh, corporate mainstream media still fails to cover him. Go figure. Uh, Another poll, this was a CNN WMUR poll released last week, found that uh, Bernie Sanders remains very popular among Democrats in New Hampshire. In fact, uh, his favorability is now almost unheard of, according to people who know this stuff. 83% of respondents said they had a favorable opinion of Vermont of the Vermont senator up in New Hampshire compared to just 9% that had an unfavorable opinion. That's 83% favorable. Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, has just 68% favorability to 24% unfavorability. Dr. Andrew Smith told the Boston Globe, uh, Dr. Andrew Smith, the director of the uh, uh, the uh, University of New Hampshire Survey Center, told the Boston Globe that Sanders' popularity is, quote, almost unheard of this far into the campaign. He said, I've never seen favorabilities for any candidate this high at this point in the primary. And yet, Mainstream corporate media continues to ignore him. I guess he needs some more hate in his campaign or something. Yep, that'll do it. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. We will be back with you. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can find and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Blog. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and of course to my guest today, Dr. Michael E. Mann of Penn State University. And my thanks, of course, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Greatly appreciated. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.